This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me is a guest who I'm, I think is actually, I've asked him to come on now, but he'll definitely be back for another helping before the show ends. He's an Edgar-winning author um, of a novel called She Rides Shotgun, which I highly recommend you guys getting your hands on, and another novel called Love and Other Wounds. He's also a writer and producer of TV shows like The Mentalist, Gotham, um, The LA Confidential Pilot, and something that is coming onto stars if you're in the US um, uh, in a little bit called Hightown. He is a heat aficionado of the highest degree. In fact, our last episode revealed that he has bootleg heat action figures, um, which made me probably more jealous than anything in my whole life since I was probably 13 years old. <laughs> he is an awesome, uh, awesome part of the show so far. He is the legendary Jordan Harper. Jordan, welcome back to One Heat Minute, mate. Thanks for coming back. Hey, thanks for having me, Blake. I, as always, extremely psyched to be as nerdy as I actually am. <laughs> Uh, and, and don't get to be in my day-to-day life. So thank you for having me. Well, I'm happy to be a, a nerdy enabler for you. And look, we've got a lot to talk about. I'm not going to dive too much into it with, right now, but we're going to watch this minute together, um, 119th minute. And this is a really... Uh, we're up close and personal just for, for people who are navigating. We're in the original theatrical cut of Heat. There are a few cuts out there. So by a second, we, you might be off if, uh, with your home copy. So just to check in with you, it's one hour, 58 minutes, um, zeros on the dial um, uh, to one hour, 59 minutes, the 119th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus. And Neil McCauley... The frame that I'm looking at right now and what Jordan and I are going to watch together in just a moment is Neil McCauley's face up close and personal with a beaten-to-a-pulp trio. Um, so this is, a, this is a massive revelation moment in the movie. And on the cusp of this minute, uh, Neil has sort of inquisitively gone wangro because he's still trying to find the architect of this, uh, this chaos, the, the heist that's gone wrong. And for him, you know, the most logical moment so far is that it's it's all it's all Treo. Treo betrayed him. Treo got flipped by the cops, and it's an you know this heat that's been hovering around the corner is there. But we get this revelation. We're going to watch this minute. Jordan and I are going to unpack it for you guys when we come back. But have a listen and uh, and get up close and personal with a messy, very messy post Wayne Grow Danny Treo. Wayne Grow on his own. Man's head? Yeah. Are you sure? Did you say anything about how we're getting out? I don't think so, man. Come on. Call a medic. I'm not gonna make it. I can't feel nothing. 
Don't leave me like this, Neil. Oh, man. That is a really, it just is a, such a strangely intimate little little scene, isn't it? it? It is. And I think, first of all, you have to notice that that is the best acting of Danny Trejo's career. By I really far. feel that way. By far. <laughs> By far. Um, so much further in terms of emotional resonance and vulnerability than anything you ever see later. Ever. Yeah. And it he does it with barely moving his face, um, his lips moving so slightly that, frankly, the first few times I saw this movie, I had no idea what he was saying. When I was watching this back on VHS, yes, um, I will have to say, back in my earliest viewings of this movie, this was kind of a gray zone where I kind of lost track of the plot a little bit. Yes, And it's because he's playing this so um, softly and the fact that, you know, I was, I don't know what I was, 17. Um <laughs> And and was you know more interested in the gunfights and, and and the machinations of of Wayne Grow and Van Sant all occur off screen. Yes. So it's a, it's a little confusing, but really, um, he's so good, and he also has a face that was made to look like the shit was just stomped out of it. Oh my god! The makeup and costume for this particular scene is so disturbing because if you look at that, like when he's in sort of his gorgeous glory standing in front of that car on the yes. payphone, he's so sleek and his jawline is so perfect and his hair is so precise and he looks so put together. And in this scene, he, he does literally look like a cockroach that's gone under a car tire. Like that's what I think that's one of the images that it evokes. And, and it's so disturbing because, and again, the intimacy with which Neil is just like in his face and it starts out very hostile um, so you can see he's just, you know, he's got no qualms here about being in the face of someone who's been squashed like this. You know, he's no, he's yeah. not, no stranger to a body like this. Um, but then the intimacy of like continuing to have like a very sort of slowly prying the information out, sort of a little bit of hostility, but a little bit of care. It's a very delicate, it's two, two very delicate pieces of performance from both these guys in this moment. Yeah. It, you know, and, and squashed is a really interesting term because Trejo literally looks flattened. Yes. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to find there's some kind of lens trick being used there to flatten that image. The, he's got a halo of blood on the carpet behind him, yes. which also serves, I think to flatten him, uh, against the carpet. And, and then it's just, yeah, he, you just feel like, whatever wound he has is not on his face. It's caused that like maybe Henry Rollins or whoever it was who did this. Forgive me for what's Henry Rollins character's name. Uh, Hugh Benny. Hugh Benny. <laughs> Hugh Benny. That one did not stick in my head. Um, I suppose he's the one who, who did this to Trejo. Him well, and Wayne Grow, I guess. Well, the big asterisk is that during, so if you've got the Michael Mann definitive edition of he, there mm-hmm. are, outtakes uh-huh and there is an amazing outtake where you see trejo arrive at home and wayne grow already there with van zant's goons okay and so what's really funny is if you watch it and i'm not sure if i can i might try and share it right now so that we can watch it together there's this really interesting scene where 
you see Wayne grow acting like in an almost Heath Ledgery kind of Joker like prototype. And if I can integrate this scene in here so Jordan and I can watch it, um, I'll try and integrate it in for you guys. Just um, We're going to just pause the show for one second. If you were ever wondering what that's, I mean, I'll wait to, <laughs> if you were ever we going back, I was just going to say, if you were ever wondering, cause I got that to record, so I'll just do some cheeky editing. But if you're ever wondering what it looked like behind the scenes, that was actually shot and ready to go. And that were the, they were the machinations prior to this, this scene. I have to say everything I said earlier about there being confusion in this part of the film is explained by them cutting that scene because that's the whole ball game right there. That's the ball game. And, and clearly they cut it. You know, I understand. First of all, the movie's very long. You, you've got to cut scenes. Yeah. Um, the movie works. Even if you don't follow what's happening, it works on momentum uh, anyway. Yeah. But from everything from seeing the outside of Trejo's house, which it was always struck me as strange that when De Niro goes in there, we don't know where he is. We've never seen that place before. We don't know where they are geographically in the city. It always felt a little weird. Um, and the fact that that's the whole ball game right there. That's, that's the scene. Um, and the other reason they might've cut it. And this is, uh, there are, there are smaller things to talk about, but here's what I have to say about that scene and this scene. And just the movie heat in general is that, Wayne Grow, to say he's the villain of the film might seem kind of obvious. Yes. But he is actually just as important to Robert De Niro's character as Al Pacino is, um, as Vincent Hanna is, and not just because of the plot machinations, but because Neil McCauley has more in common with Wayne Grow than he does with Vincent Hanna. Oh, I like this. And, I, I like where this is going. <laughs> the 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 professionalism that he exudes is in the end a facade, and this entire story is launched and and predicated on Neil McCauley breaking his professional code in acts of violence. The movie starts that way. If he didn't try to kill Wayne Grow, 
for his cowboy actions, none of this happens. 100%. If he, and not to get ahead, but we get ahead in this film. <laughs> we, we're, was, we're just like Neil McCauley. We have a discipline, and then we repeatedly break it. So. <laughs> and his inability to let go of his rage and uh, his inability to just let things go and be professional also is what gets him killed at the end of the film. Yes. And both, so as a character, what we're dealing with is, is, is kind of a Wolverine in the Frank Miller years, if that reference means anything to you. <laughs> yes. Um, when, 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 when Frank Miller had Wolverine studying Bushido and being a samurai and then throwing the samurai sword away and, and popping his claws out. Yes. Um, and for all his talk of, of walking away, the one thing he can't walk away from is affronts to his manhood. Um, the, you know, the stains of, he doesn't look like a professional. So Wayne Grow must die. Yes. Um, and that Wayne Grow double crosses him and might get away with it. Yeah. There's these weird layers to him, right? There's this kind of, I think, I think the escape is almost at odds. Like leaving the discipline is almost at odds with his code. And to your point, it kind of sound like by the sounds of it, like expanding on your point, that's kind of what it is. It's like when he's saying he wants to get out, the code says, no, you've been, you have a loose end that you have to kill. And so it requires you to have the anonymity. It requires you to, be off the grid. It requires you to have planned things so that there is no police response time, as we just saw in that deleted mm-hmm. scene. It requires all these things, but it's like then the hubris of like I can do it. Like I've made, I've taken calculated risks before. Mm-hmm. I can get out of this, and that's that also eats him as well. It's like this. It's this being stuck on a train, being stuck on train tracks, and trying to change lanes. He just can't do yeah. it. He cannot do it. He's at odds with. He's at odds with his his idealistic attempts to leave. Um, and in these moments, we see a couple of scenes. And this is like the, the great echoes of this movie and the match cuts. It's like both this scene, although it's sort of shrouded in darkness, and the Christian Hairless scene is like Neil appraising people who are completely fucked up. Like mm-hmm. and like whispering to them nicely and trying to convince them. One is a little slightly more aggressive, being this one. Yeah. But the Chris scene is very, you know, think about that. He's very calm and cool and, and is trying to hold sway and influence over what's happening. And it's just, it's, yeah, I, I, in this scene, for a movie that is so loud and bombastic, in a couple of scenes here, after all this like deafening sound, he's making you lean in to hear mm-hmm. people like pulse at their last breath. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it is it is about a it is a study in contrast. I I, you know, you said you said there's him to go back and. and through. And I think that's kind of my point is that he he makes it the it's all about walking away. Uh oh. Yeah, sorry. You, Blake, did I lose you? No, you didn't lose me, but it's just saying to connect to audio only. So I just flicked it to audio. Sorry, go ahead, John. No worries. I have a poor network connection. Uh, okay, I'll start again. Um, now I lost my train of thought. Hold on, just give me a second. <laughs> um, 
Okay, I'll just say, you know, um, you were saying that you felt like it's his code that requires him to walk away, uh, but or that requires him to go and close these loose ends. But in fact, the code requires you to walk away from anything yes. that will will stop you from getting away from the heat. And he is, you know, he has these opportunities to not bring the heat down on him. Now, obviously, Wayne Grow, by acting out in, in the first heist, is the person who brings the heat down on them in the first place. Yes. But it's, you know, he could have not tried to kill Wayne Grow. He could have just paid him off in the diner like he says he's going to do, but he makes the decision to do what is, uh, frankly, kind of a sloppy attempt to kill Wayne Grow in the parking lot of a, dry, of a, of a diner. Um, and, and that cause, and Wayne Grow gets away. Um, and Zant also makes a move against him. And now that's a little different. I do think you do have to go after Van Zant because he has your money. That's a very professional's code. Yes. Um, but um, he never, correct me, he never gets the money. He does kill Van Zant. Um, but his, his inability to, to, to let go is kind of the point because I think it's something he shares with Wayne Grow. And I think there is a different version of this story with none of the plot that we have now changed, but where we see a lot more of Wayne Grow's character and what he's doing, where we kind of understand that this is actually about Neil McCauley being drawn between two characters instead of this kind of pas de deux that he dances uh, with Vincent Hanna in this version, we would understand that it's actually a guy who's both drawn to this, this kind of professional code and life. And this guy who has this like obvious demon inside him that he can't keep a lid on. And at the end, that is actually what brings him down. It's, it's so funny, you know, how we're now in the 119th minute and like 59 episodes ago, um, I remember talking to Manola Dargis around the connections between Vincent and Wayne Grow, and then therefore the, the this sort of triumvirate connection in this movie. It's not just these two guys; um, mm-hmm. it's it's these ancillary characters that sometimes have such a a, a deeper implicit connection. I think from a emotional perspective, that's Krisha Hairless, and we're going to dive into that in upcoming minutes when we talk about the sure. up, amazing scenes with Charlene and the the gesture that everyone who loves this movie yes. just dies uh, in love again, 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 and with that scene. But, you know, in that scene where Pacino's in a car park and seeing a prostitute in a bin, like that is him directly appraising Wayne Grow's work as he did in the first mm-hmm. five minutes of looking at Neil's. And yeah. it's, it's this weird thing where you see that like Wayne Grow's chaos is sort of organized. Um, mm-hmm. And, and Neil's Neil's organization is sort of chaotic. <laughs> like it's like this weird. There's these weird things that are happening um, across, you know, across everything. Um, um, uh, those weird connections, those weird subtleties between those two characters. And yeah, I I agree with you. Maybe maybe it's not. Maybe the code says walk away from everything, and and he's sort of a. I don't know. That's that attitude. But it's like he's got a very controlled. Do you agree? Jordan, that he's got a very controlled setting. He's got very controlled oh, yeah. people around him. So when he says it's all about order, it's about it's about this. He can he can espouse this theory of like I can walk away from anything, I can do anything. But when you're talking about his character, he, it's very controlled. He's got Michael, who's kind of a yes man. He's got Chris, who's willing to challenge him, but he trusts him implicitly. So there's like this connection. And when he gets these chaotic elements, even Treo, he wants to put him down. Um, with, with Wango, um, you know. 
there's these people on the fringes. If they're cre- not creating order or not maintaining order in his crew, that's where he's like really hostile. And like even Charlene, that he had to go and mm-hmm. squash her affair with Marciano to maintain the order of his little crew. It's this weird thing mm-hmm. where it's like every single time there's these moments where he's presented with someone who's create, you know, who's creating chaos in his little in his little organized area, and and it's how he, you know reflexively looks to violence to sort of shut it down. <laughs> like it's like it's like instead of disconnecting them and just going, that didn't work, yeah. they have to die. Oh it's uh that's right. And I think again to and I'll stop beating this to death in a second, but um it, the people who need the most rules and need the most order are the people who are trying to keep something down in themselves. And you know he he's desperately trying to keep order, and you're right. He is he is absolutely uh, super efficient at eliminating chaos in the world around him, and the amount of um, you know discipline he's put into these guys, uh, you know his whole crew, which clearly them too, they're not natural soldiers, um, and and yet he's drilled them into this like you know absolutely um, perfect uh, you know military order. Um, but again, I just I feel like. Maybe I'm just telling myself something I didn't notice the first many times I watched this film, which is that this is really a lot of ways about a man trying and failing to control his rage, which is both inside him and embodied by Wayne Grove. So, yeah, I think I think your point of that embodiment of his rage being Wayne Grove is, you know, this manifestation of like impulse, like Wayne Grove's mm-hmm. pure impulse, and Neil is impulsive. But like yeah. Wayne Grow is pure impulse. He's like, if it, it doesn't matter that he has white supremacist tattoos, he's going yeah. and shagging black prostitutes and then having to, you know, um, squash the own conflict or contradiction of of that event by death as well. And he's yeah. the guy who, you know, in one moment is like betraying some crew, and the next moment he's, you know, smoking a cigarette and grabbing a beer in a bar in yeah. probably their area. Like their stomping mm-hmm. ground, and that, like, in all the things that tell you, and just in the same way we say with Neil, and all the ways that Wayne Grove should just disappear, like leave Los Angeles immediately and just go anywhere right. else. He's like, oh no, I'll like still interact with a guy who I know has double crossed Neil. Just right. to like, I'm just here. I'm just chaos waiting. Impulse, like, yeah, it'd be good for me to mess <laughs> with him even more because he tried to kill me, even though he probably knows that, you know. He probably knows the outcome. And I think what's cool about watching the deleted scene in this moment is I like the reveal. I kind of like not knowing. So when I see that other scene, I'm like, and you're so right, it does all the business. And it's only, if you cut out the beginning um, of that deleted scene with the, the, the preamble to the heist. Yeah. If you cut that out and just go to the Treo scene, it's quite an economical scene. Does what it needs to do. Probably wouldn't have required much, you know, speeding up as far as, giving us absolutely everything. But the fact that Neil still doesn't know how it all went down, I love is like a great question mark at the end of this. Like, how did this happen? How did it get, how did they get a tip anonymously mm-hmm. that it was happening? Because for, you know, the first, you know, five, five minutes of that heist almost, or was it like three minutes when they're just about to, you know, walk out, it's all perfect until someone doesn't hide correctly behind a U-Haul and Val Kilmer starts firing an automatic weapon. Right, right. Um, no, and I, I agree with you that, it, like I said, it, it was confusing, particularly when I was uh, young and dumber than I am now. 
but um, it is a good cut, and the movie needed cuts. And I, I, you know, uh, every movie needs cuts. And David <laughs> Mamet has has a great quote, which is, "You start editing uh, with a scalpel, and you end editing with a chainsaw." And um, <laughs> and I totally understand that you're in the editing bay, and maybe you try and clip some frames here or a reaction shot there, and then you go, "No, we got to start losing minutes." Well, can the audience figure out from just the blood on the walls and the woman's legs? What happened to Anna? Yes. Oh, yes, yeah. they can. Yes. Um, you know, can, can we just get this story from, from Trejo? Yeah, I think if they knew it was going to carry all that narrative weight, they might have had him enunciate a little more. But um, it's it's still a great performance. Um, it's also, and just to talk about, in the minute before the one we're discussing, there is a two-shot of... Uh, Trejo and Macaulay, where they're both in the same frame. In the minute we just watched, there isn't. It's very traditional, almost what I would call TV-style editing, which is De Niro talks. So there's a shot, not over the shoulder of Trejo, because he's on the floor, but as close to over the shoulder of Trejo as they can get. And then an over-the-shoulder of Macaulay onto Trejo when Trejo's talking. It's very just the first pass that an editor is going to put together you of an assemblage of that scene is going to have those cuts. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, And, and they're correct because there's no reason to, to get fancy here where we their faces do all the work. um, And there is a lot of information being passed and and we don't need a lot of trickery It the lighting spectacular is always, you know, the performances are great. And so the, the camera just kind of sits there and the editing just goes from a to B to a to B to a to B. Uh, for the, the entire minute, I'm pretty sure. Oh, most definitely, and and pretty much the that phenomenal lighting from Dante Spinotti underneath to capture all of the De Niro trying to pull things together. Like he genuinely mm-hmm. shows that great amount of shock of like Wango and Van Zant. Like he's yeah. flabbergasted. Like how did like how did these two? How did these two possibly get together? Um, and so then it's like, but but I love that the impulse for both Neil and Vincent is Vincent's hunting this same story. And it's 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 this is what's great about here is you've got the luxury of two people who are doggedly hunting down how this went down badly from both sides. Mm-hmm. So you've got like the pure power, the pure character power and drive of both Pacino and De Niro hunting down the gaps in the story. So you as a as a viewer, you're like, oh, I'm like. De Niro is investigating and finding out how these connections happened at the same time yeah. Pacino is. And so then whatever we miss here, you get from Hugh Benny. And in a, you know, like there's a lot of hostility that happens with Vincent and um, Vincent and Hugh Benny in upcoming minutes, but mm-hmm. you get that great scene of like Pacino essentially is the one who gets the, the chunk of exposition to explain what happened. This guy, you know, was with Van Zandt, got this, got this detail Wayne grow. We're going to catch, we're going to pick him up. We're going to put him in a hotel and, and hopefully use him as a, as a trap for Neil later, even though he doesn't think it's going to work. <laughs> it's a terrible trap. <laughs> it, yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I also wonder like why so close to the airport? Yeah. <laughs> but maybe that's so smart. Like I haven't actually even mentioned that on the show. And it was probably a great, Great moment to do it with you right now. It's like the fact that he's <laughs> yeah. so close to the airport, it almost makes it too tantalizing. Uh-huh. Like if Neil did find out and he was going to get a flight out of here, 
Oh, he's just so close to that airport. Just so close. So <laughs> close. It's like when well, you live too close to a fast food restaurant and it's just that one second around the corner. Do I make dinner when I get home or do I pick up that fast food? Well, and especially if you're close to the airport, you know, there's not a lot else around there. So you might as well Correct. stop and kill Wingro. So. Not much. <laughs> I don't want to check in early. I've done the online yeah. check-in. I'll just go kill yeah, Wangro okay. and get to the airport. <laughs> exactly. Look, um, maybe it is less torture than getting through LAX. Is literally bypassing <laughs> the standard TSA security, <laughs> killing one of your enemies, and then jumping the fence out the back just to get just to not have to go through the regular the regular check-ins. <laughs> Uh, one other thing that that uh, deleted scene answered for me was I was asking earlier what what the uh, you know like the halo of blood was from, and uh, Wayne Grow answers that. And you know if you're just listening, you can't see that he's just tossing a baseball bat in his hands as he walks to deal with Trejo. So there you go, yeah. baseball bat probably to the back of the head. Yes, a gnarly baseball bat. And also, man does this great thing of like. See how jauntily he tosses that in the Wayne Grow scene? Yeah. Guys, guys listening, um, when you listen, uh, if you go to the podcast description on your podcast app, I'm going to make sure that I have a link to that deleted scene so that you know what Jordan and I are talking about because it's obviously having such an impact on both this scene and everything that we're talking about. But I think about this scene and I think about the fallout. I think about the jaunty way that he tosses that baseball bat and I'm just like, this is just... He's having too much fun for what we know mm-hmm. now, especially when you directly contrast it with what the outcome of that that is um and man also loves just getting guys to sit around a room and not have to say anything and have face tattoos in the 90s yeah and you're like in the 90s if you saw that guy you're like oh he's killed many people (laughs) like a hundred percent people have died at his hand and he he, you know whether he gets these reformed um white supremacist folk you know uh to, to go into his movie or someone who's in a gang um, or former member of a gang, and he gets them to sort of sit down. That the guy with the face tattoos, you're just like, yeah, this guy, he's not a nice one, person. One of those two thugs uh, in that scene is somebody I know I have seen in other films from that era, uh, and I, I can't tell you what, and I'll have to go back and look, and maybe I can place it. But um, I think he got around the the glowering tough guy scene of the <laughs> '90s. And what a scene it was in the '90s yeah. for glowering tough guys. <laughs> sure. You're right. It, it's, it's, you know, everything gets soft after a while. There's no like, um, like iconography of manhood that, that still means you're really tough. And, and face tattoos have definitely entered into the no longer means you're like a guy that you cross the street when you see them. No, as soon as, uh, but, as soon as Post Malone and Gucci Mane entered popular consciousness, it's like if someone yeah. got a tattoo of an ice cream on their face, they're no longer scary. Like they're just not scary. And a, a few weeks ago, at the time we we're recording this, there was a girl who faked a, a, a musician who faked a Harry Styles tattoo on her face, and the internet melted down for a day. And then they were like, "No, it's actually a fake." So, um, uh, yeah, it's, they don't seem to have that same power. Even even visible tattoos back in the nineties was such a were like a right. huge thing. Like if someone had like a really big thumping visible tattoo, you're like, "Ooh, that's that's a." That person might have been around or whatever. It just doesn't. Yeah, it it, it doesn't have the same like omnipresence yeah. as now. Like I've got a stack yeah. of tattoos, and so it's just <laughs> like it's it's. Uh, I wouldn't have imagined it in the nineties, and even in nineties movies, characters you don't see it on anyone except unless they're a villain or they're in prison. Well, what you see now that I think is really interesting on, on guys who who aspire to, well, maybe they wish to look tough, but 
guys who whose first tattoo is a full sleeve of one arm. <laughs> yes. Um, and and they have no other tattoos on their body. And it's like, wow, it's that's OK. That's that's. I feel very old now that I just made that complaint. But no, um, no, no that's OK, because I was wondering that in the early 2000s, too. It just was like a yeah. whole sleeve tattoo. And you're like, huh. But especially else? just like somebody just starts with that. They don't do a, a flyer of like a, a, you know, the dolphin on the ankle or, or whatever. I think just... there's a secret dolphin on the ankle for every guy who has a full sleeve tattoo. I hope, I hope there is. I hope there is. I do too. <laughs> it's, you know, I think I, I, I talked in a recent minute with Bobby Roberts, who's a great producer of the um, 80s All Over podcast. And we talked about oh, okay. Michael Mann understanding the an actor's potential even in a bit role and can just like almost like utilize all the muscles that that actor has in the briefest of performances so we've seen in the entire career of danny treo these phenomenal tough guys you know the there's the cartoonish sort of machete um uh, uh like at the end of his career and sort of uh, and those sorts of things that you can get con airs and those other movies that he's all around but Man kind of gets like attractive and cool at the beginning of this movie, you mm-hmm. know, intimidating and very capable and like in the criminal world, like driving the cars, talking on the radios, being a bit savvy, you know, saying, I, I'm, you know, these guys are on me like a cheap suit. Great line, like one of the great yeah. lines. But is here not allowing him to rely, like, this is like if you look at the frame, the makeup of the frame basically a third of the frame or more than a third is completely black, which is the back of Neil's head, essentially what we're meant to assume. The halo of blood, as you pointed out, which is, you know, disturbing. He's got the blood all over his clothes and his squashed trio and such a limited amount of movement that for a guy who's a new actor, he's like denying him his, his weapon of choice, right? His face to actually emote. And, and I think that that's what man, like in this moment, he got like, with Danny Trejo, he's got such an iconic face that to really cut through the emotion, you don't want him to... You, you want as minimal a performance out of him as possible. You want yeah. nothing. You want him to emote nothing at all and almost like restraining him and making him like squashed in like this. It, he, he's accessing something that like other performances don't get from him because even when he is trying to play quiet, he still looks like Danny Trejo. Like he's such an icon. His face is so iconic that it's like, even when he was young and cool, it was still young, cool, sleek. Like he, this is the time of Desperado, right? Like he comes out and that's right. like, that's the, that's the template for how Danny Trejo likes to be used in almost every other movie. And so he just always looks like the tough guy. Always. Yeah. And it's impossible to do it. But I think man, like he's like, oh, I know the breadth of this guy from like cool to like savvy crook getting in there. And also if you want to take him to his Zenith is to like make him not do anything. Right. Well, and, and make him be the one thing he isn't in any of those other roles, which is, as you said earlier, vulnerable. Yes. Um, vulnerable. And s- not just physically, but just obviously the fact that, that Anna is dead is, is, he doesn't want to live anymore. It's it, the wounds might be fatal anyway, but that's not why he wants to die. He wants to die because Anna's gone. And yeah, yeah, it's I can't think of any other role where where Danny Trejo gets to play like that. No, and especially the line that is in this minute, which which when Neil says "Come on," and he goes, "I don't know, I don't remember," 
he doesn't remember. Yeah. Because the torture... Uh, that line gets me every time I watch this minute because the torture is so heinous yeah, and, um, so, and that, so abject that he can't remember what he said. I Yes, that part has... For me, for some reason, it's the way he says, he says, Zant. And yes. then yes. De Niro says, Van Zant. And he's, Van Zant. And it's very like, oh, that's right. Like, I remember now. Like, yes. he doesn't get that much enthusiasm because he's dead. <laughs> but, like, uh, but like, Van Zant. Like, like his, his tortured brain has, like, seized on to that name now and it can hold on to it. And it, it is. It's a, you're right. It's a really good performance. And, and uh, it would be fascinating to hear uh, if Michael Mann has ever talked about it, about getting a guy like that to just don't think I, cause I, if, if I may, I, I love Danny Trejo and, and I love to watch him, but he is one of those um, non-actors who became an actor who you can kind of always see them thinking about their lines when they're saying them um, in, in some of his other performances. Um, Especially the two some... wordy, the two wordy when they're like, go and, you know, go and be an unstoppable force. That's where he like, you know, look at, look yeah. at Desperado. It's like, he doesn't have a line. He's yeah. just, gruff and angry and going to destroy you and that's like that's that's the perfect utilization of him in and when he starts talking in machete i think him struggling to remember the lines in machete is because everyone is struggling to remember the lines in machete <laughs> well to me and, and i don't want to put too much at, at trejo's doorstep uh i don't know if you watch sons of anarchy um not not everything i've only watched the first season uh, well, watch the second season and then quit. Second season's actually quite good, but there's somewhere when the show really started to lose its way, and it's actually this exact moment I'm going to talk about is one of the several shark-jumping moments in the show, but this was a big one. Which Danny Trejo was introduced as a cartel drug runner, and you're like, okay, sure, I, I get that. Mm -hmm. And then in, in a scene, he is revealed to actually be an undercover CIA agent. And... And then has to start explaining international, you know, uh, geopolitical <laughs> situations involved with the d drug trade. And you're just like, no, man. Like, no. 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 Don't, don't do that to Danny Trejo. That, that is not his job, man. No, like, that, he's not the guy that you give five pages of exposition. You give him as yeah. minimum, minimal amount as possible. Yeah, it's, it's a real skill for him to sit here and to be, you know, to be delivering this piecemeal, and I love how you said he just ca he, he he glances on to Van Zant, like capturing a one fractured word mm -hmm. that helps him sort of articulate where things are at, and then he sort of you know it, it's just it's just all a mess, it's all a jumble. It just serves such a great purpose because it's like in this moment you want him to be unsure, like the fact that he's forgetting his lines or not knowing them in this moment or knowing them, but they come out like they're kind of, he, 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 he can't quite remember anything is exactly the, you know, leading to the power of this moment. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it is a, in a movie that has obviously, as you well know, some of the loudest moments in, in movie history, it's such a quiet moment and it's so powerful because of that. Yeah. Um, I think and, uh, I, I think the lighting is almost louder than any sound that's made. Like I just love I I I just love the way that the light etches out all the emotions on Robert De Niro's face, the way they mm -hmm. underlight everything. And yeah. and 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 Treo has no face movement, so it's got this beautiful again De Niro one of the best actors in cinema because his face does 
fascinating things when you're in close up and he's thinking about stuff. Like he doesn't have to say yeah. too many words, just lots of things going on, wheels spinning, great emotions, you know, rippling through his face. And then just nothing here. That great contrast of both of them. And then we yeah. we come to the, the the climactic moments where, you know, he, he feels like, oh, I should get a medic. And it's like, don't. I can't feel anything. I can't feel anything. What they did to Anna. And uh and it's it's one of the more tender pieces of violence that is coming up in the next minute than anything yeah, else we've seen in is. the movie. It's really beautiful. Um yeah, you know, that's that line about the medic, just to so we can peer, pierce through everything, is uh, how many how many mob doctors do they know? Or is he just saying he's going to go get Jeremy Piven? I don't think he's going to get Piven. I think he's saying, I, I think he's just going to call an ambulance and get that oh, ambulance I gotcha. and, and jet out of there. But, it, but that's actually a very good clue to some of Neil's past, which, you know, we, oh, have, you're right. we have briefly touched on as a military past is the fact that he uses the word medic. I'm going to get a medic. That's. That's true. That's a good point. I, I, I assume that to mean mob doctor, but you're right. At this point, Jeremy Piven isn't going to be able to pass that up. So No. And speaking of performances of a, of a that synthesizes an entire actor's career in just a minute, that was what I was talking to with Bobby Roberts was Jeremy Piven. Was oh, like sure. The yappy bulldog who doesn't quite get his way um, and, gets, and, 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 and gets to sort of suck eggs for, for our joy. That's Jeremy yeah. Piven's entire career in sixty seconds in the previous in one of the previous minutes, and and here also you learn how, how hairy he is, which I think is also <laughs> part of his career. Um, the amount of he, hair because I I don't know why you remember or I remember he's wearing like a metal wrist rot watch, you know, with yeah. the with the band, and uh, guy I don't have a lot of arm hair. And uh, I always think about guys who do and, and how it can get caught in a metal band like that. I Absolutely. bet Piven just has like a, a, a bear patch, just <laughs> like it's been waxed just right around the wristwatch area. Yeah, he, he's got a 40-year-old virgin sort of patch where, where, he's, where his watch clasp has just torn all the hair out every single time he's had it on there. Oh, okay. man. Look, so we, we head here and we're into, you know, in all the in all the brutality and all the high order violence, and and a few clues to Neil's past and just a tremendously quiet performance, we arrive, you know, at the end of the hundred nineteenth minute and right on the precipice of the hundred twentieth minute. I want to thank my amazing guest again, Jordan Harper, award winning author, writer, producer on TV and in and in books because they still exist, folks. Those books, <laughs> um, mate. Thank you so much for being a part of the show again. Oh man, thank you again. Like this is the most fun. I, I feel like, uh, you know, this is the time that I get to put on my wig and, and my dancing shoes and be the real me. So. <laughs> that is so great. And look, we we also we have um, have scheduled that Jordan is coming back just for one more minute, um, which I believe is the entrance. Um, Neil's entrance uh, and and going and navigating his way through the hotel with our very own Wayne Grow um, in there. So there is um, there is one more minute that Jordan will definitely be back for. And uh, if as, as we've said, there might be a little bit of a, um, a, a 
a celebratory lap during the credits. <laughs> we will get him back for that too. But, mate, thank you so awesome. much for being a part of the show once again. Guys, Thanks. If, if you want to follow Jordan, it's at Jordan underscore Harper on Twitter. That's where you can find all of his stuff and links to everything um, that he's done and working on too. I'll also put a link up um, on One Hit Minute uh, page so you can follow through and see all of our amazing guests. Um, but thank you so much for being a part of the show again. Thank you to Garth Franklin for our web design, Mr. Paul Davies for our theme song, and thank you, amazing folks, for continuing to listen. Um, we're really lucky this show is um, has like the best people that reach out to be a guest and the great growing crew um, that have all been a part of it. I would just want to thank all of you guys again for listening. Um, and uh, we are actually nominated for an Australian Podcast Award um, in the film oh, yeah. and television category. Um, so if you uh, do want to vote and you hear this, um, and it's before Valentine's Day or on Valentine's Day, um, you may have missed it. I'm sorry if, you, if that's the case. But uh, um, uh, just to be nominated and be up there and to see you guys voting and, and, and being a part of it is pretty huge. And uh, I just want to say a huge thank you. But, guys, Jordan and I are going to go now, but we'll catch another episode of One Hit Minute just around the corner. Bye, everybody.